job and I, I know you love them. We're going to begin a series in Colossians tonight. This is just a powerful book. And uh, introduction tonight. I'm going to go over a little history of it and um, orientation to the book. And I want to encourage you, read ahead. You know where we're going. And I've decided years ago, really three or four years ago, something kind of clicked in me. And I made more of a decision than ever to be a teacher, not just preaching topical messages, but a teacher, because there is such a need for truth. I mean, just to know the Bible. Um, I always did series on Wednesday nights, but I just feel a greater burden than I've, than I've ever felt to counter the deception of our culture with truth. And, and the word is truth. What Jesus say? Thy word is truth. So let's pray together. I'm going to ask God to change us through this book. Lord, right now we just come to you with this mighty book of Colossians. Inspired by the Holy Spirit. Penned by Paul, but inspired by the Holy Spirit every word. And we pray that you will renew our minds tonight. Renew our spirits and souls tonight. Lord, bring renewal to us. Open our understanding. Open our eyes that we might see the glorious truth tucked away in these pages. I pray that when we finish this series, we will be changed, rearranged, delivered, established, rooted, and grounded. And Lord, I pray, give us eyes to see tonight, ears to hear tonight what you want to say to us out of this book. In the mighty name of Jesus, lift up a prayer and say, Lord, I ask you to speak to me tonight. Amen. Amen. God bless you. You can be seated. I want to remind you that the notes are available in the foyer if you should want them. Uh, if you get those notes, and by the time we're done with this series, you'll have a book on Colossians. Huh? With a small charge, right? It's just kind of a cost charge, but that's it. And um, by the time we're done, we'll have a, a book, a book on Colossians, all the notes. And, you know, I type all these out, and um, I love doing it. I want you to understand the scriptures. Our country is under attack. Western culture is under attack. We're under attack by really a, just a full front-on assault from the forces of hell. And I would say that the crux of the attack is primarily philosophical, theological. Uh, our faith is under attack. Uh, the teaching of the Scripture under attack. The truth of the Word of God under attack. Even any notion that there is a truth is under attack. You know, your truth is your truth, mine is mine, and all that malarkey. But I'm going to tell you, truth is truth. And whether or not you believe in it, you're going to have to answer to it. Now, let's, let's, I want to just begin with a little bit of history on the book of Colossians, how it came about, why it came about. And, um, and then we're going to go from there. We're going to get only through about the fourth verse tonight due to the intro. Next week, we'll gallop a lot quicker. But I don't want to go too quick because every verse is so loaded with good stuff. So let's, uh, and that clicker, we on there, TJ? Hmm. Okay. I'm sorry, folks. We're just having technical Oh, there it went. Did you do that? Okay. 
TJ, give him a hand. Here he comes. I don't know. I got to have this. All right. Let's see if we can. He'll be right back. Well, turn to your neighbor and tell him it's good to see you in church tonight. I got to have my clicker. <laughs> turn to the person on the other side and say, he's got to have his clicker. I think it's working now. Give TJ another hand. <laughs> oh, there's none of this technical stuff in heaven. But thank God you can have something this cool that I can just do a little click and the whole thing changes. But let's, let's look now at Colossians. We're thankful. First of all, I want to give credit where credit's due for the excellent commentary by John Phillips for much of the content of this series and the outline below. John Phillips has been an incredible discovery for me. His commentary series is just incredible. So I want to give credit there. Now, uh, our time in Colossians are going to cover, let me quickly just show you where we're going in an outline form in the next uh, few weeks. The introduction, of course, and then B, Paul's passion for people. We're going to see Paul's a passionate man about the right kind of things. Paul's passion for people. Then we're going to see Paul's passion for prayer. Then Paul's passion for principle, his passion for progress, his passion for preachers, hallelujah, and his passion for perspective. Part two, we're going to see the truth about the Christ. And this is where I really want to go, what I really want us to get. The truth about Jesus Christ, the deity of Christ, all man, all God, all God, all man. He was not normal. He was the Christ, the only begotten. And Paul is going to expand on that in a way that just blows your mind. So the deity of Christ, we're going to look at in verse 15 through 19. The person of God will be revealed. Number two, the power of God revealed. Third, the purposes of God revealed. All right. And boy, I'll tell you, I lost it again, TJ. The devil doesn't want us going through this. Do I, can we, somebody run it back to him? Now try it? Okay. What's going on back there? <laughs> All right. The death of Christ. And then the demands of Christ. Now part three is the truth about the cult. And I'm going to talk about that cult in just a minute. A, experiencing the truth. We ought to always be experiencing the power of the truth. And then exposing the lie of that cult, secular reasoning, sundry rituals that we don't ever have to be involved in. Don't eat, don't taste, don't touch, don't smell, and all these things. In other words, rules and regulations instead of a walk of faith. Special revelations we're going to look at and stricter rules. And then part four, the truth about the Christian, truth about you and me. The statement of what is expected, the steps to what is expected in our personal life in our church life, in our domestic life. And can you believe that God cares about your business life? And in your secular life. And then at part five, we're going to conclude in chapter four, seven through 18. Now let's look at the beginning. The little town of Colossae. We don't know when it was founded, but look at this. Colossae was already in existence in the days of Xerxes. What does that mean? 
He was the king of Persia from 486 to 465 B.C. So Colossae was around 500 years before Christ was born. That's an old town. Five centuries old. Xerxes was the king during Esther's time. So all the way back to Esther's time, Colossae existed. And at that time, uh, or it was still there in Paul's day. Uh, it was an old city located about 100 miles from Ephesus. Now, just so you'll know, not that it means anything, but Colossians literally translated means punishments. Don't know if I want to live in a town that means punishments, but that's what it meant. The main road from Ephesus to the Euphrates ran through Colossae. So though it was a little town, a lot of traffic went by, sort of like they had an I-35 going through town. Its population was a mix of Phrygians. You say, what's that? They were from Phrygia. That's easy, right? Greeks, that means Gentiles, and Jews. In apostolic times, it had ceased to be of much importance, uh, being a small, insignificant market town. The whole area of Colossae bore the scars of past volcanic activity. And within several years, the writing of this letter, after they received this letter and got delivered of uh, what we're going to see as Gnosticism, Colossae was destroyed by an earthquake and never restored. We would likely have never heard of it today had Paul not written a letter bearing its name. As brief as the letter is, it ranks among the giants. No one ever wrote greater or grander things about the Lord Jesus than Paul does in this epistle. And that's one of the real reasons I'm going to it, and I want to teach it to you and share it with you. The book was written by the great apostle in 62 to 64 AD from Rome during his first imprisonment. So he was in prison, chained to a Roman soldier when he wrote this. I'm constantly moved by the power of this apostle Paul, his personality. You couldn't knock him down, couldn't knock him out. His intellect. His brilliance, his Christ-likeness. Greatest Christian that ever lived was Paul. Hands down. So here he decides, well, if you're going to chain me up, I'm just going to write. So the devil made a big mistake chaining him up. The major themes of the book are thanksgiving and completeness, our completeness in Christ. That's the major themes. Now the first chapter You'll notice when you read it, and I hope you do, I really encourage you to do it, it's noted for its very long sentences. We call them Pauline sentences. We call them Pauline because they're so long. As a matter of fact, look at this. Verses 3 to 8 is one sentence. He goes on and on and comma after comma and semicolon and comma. He goes on. And verses 9 through 17, one sentence. And verses 21 through 29 follow suit. So you can, I mean, chapter 1 is like four or five sentences. But guess what? It's 29 verses long. It's like the Spirit of God would come upon him and he just couldn't stop. Comma, comma. Oh, oh and this, and there's this, and there's this. It's difficult to outline this book because of the wealth of material contained in each sentence. I mean, they're just so loaded with truth. You read just one verse and you can stay on it for a month. 
But if there is a primary thought found in chapter 1, it is the preeminence of Christ Jesus. Okay? The catalyst for the writing of Colossians, here's what caused Paul to write it. A visit to the imprisoned Paul from Colossians' pastor, Epaphras. Everybody say with me, Epaphras. I don't know what you would have called him for short. Ep, hey, Ep. Epaphras. That's difficult. I wondered if it was Epaphras. Epaphras. It's Epaphras. So let's say it together again. It just rolls off the tongue, all right? Now, what happened? Paul's in prison, and here comes Epaphras. He's traveled 1,000 to 1,300 miles with a burden. He's the pastor of the Colossian church. Now, he came with deep concerns over the spread of heresy in this little church. And it was a little church. It wasn't a mega church. It wasn't like the Jerusalem church. This is a little out-of-the-way church, okay? The heresy at hand was the same one that we just dealt with when we went through the book of Jude, the heresy of Gnosticism. Now, we're not dealing with Gnosticism now, but we are dealing with the same kind of attacks because any false teaching attacks the person or the work of Jesus. Every time Mormons... Jehovah's Witnesses, we can go through and name all the cults. Every last one of them are a cult because they attack the person or the work of Jesus Christ. So it's got to be answered. And that's what Jude meant when he said, I want you to stand up and earnestly defend for the, the faith that was once delivered to the saints. I want you to stand up and fight for the faith. Well, what was the faith? That God sent his only begotten son into the world born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died on the cross for our sins, was buried, rose again from the dead on the third day, has now ascended right back to the throne room of God, sits on the right-hand side of God, and will one day come again. That's the faith. The faith. So Gnosticism did what any cult does, and that's why it doesn't really matter what the name of it was. We need to see how Paul dealt with it because we're dealing with it right now. If you don't know that, let me illuminate you tonight. The church is under attack. The word's under attack. Jesus is under attack. So that's why Colossians matters so much. As we've seen repeatedly in our studies of Scripture, false teaching and false doctrine, heresy and apostasy were common weapons of choice against the early church. And Satan's tactics haven't changed. Why should he try something new when the old stuff still works? Okay? But guess who can't be deceived? People who know their Bible. See, you, you, you should not be a victim of a cult or any false teaching. If you know your Bible, the more you know it, the better you know it, the more intimate you are with your Bible the less likely you are to ever be deceived, to ever be lured away, to ever be taken by false teaching. Okay? Satan likely thought that the little church at Colossae would be an easy target. Yeah, little church out of the way. None of the major apostles are there. Just little old Epaphras and some country folk. So he attacked. It was made up of very ordinary people. Village tinker here, local butcher there, 
Man pushing a wheelbarrow through the streets, hawking fruit. That kind of picture, that kind of environment. But as always, Satan greatly underestimated the power of the Christ that lived within them. Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So he he always underestimates not you and me, but the Christ who is in us. So every time they fell on their knees, when this cult began to attack, this false teaching began to attack, Satan's kingdom shook because they prayed. In Satan's mind, the best tactic against the church was to corrupt it from within, and it still is today. If we're unified and we're walking in truth, let the devil throw at us what he wants to. It will not take us down. But if you can get him inside and corruption can begin to work from within, then he can take you down. So he took the truth of God and he found his willing vessels to deny it, distort it, and debase it. He attacked the word of God, the son of God, and the spirit of God. At Colossae, he attacked the deity of Christ first that he was God in flesh. Then came the wicked additions of intellectualism, ritualism, legalism, mysticism, asceticism, all the things you get in your normal junior college. Or the college of your choice. You'll get any of those, all of those. It was enough to make Pastor Epiphras' head swim. He was soon out of his depth with this attack. The error that invaded Colossae was too deep, too subtle for him. So he went to the one man Satan most feared, the Apostle Paul. He makes a trip of 1,000 to 1,300 miles, depending on which way he took, to go to Rome and see Paul. When he finds Paul, they allow him in to talk to the great apostle, and he pours his heart out. Paul, man, we're under attack. I mean, there's some teachers that have come into my church right there in Colossae, and they're teaching that Jesus was not God. They're teaching all kinds of things that I know are wrong, but Paul, they're so good at it. They're so smooth. They're so slick. I can't seem to get a grip on it. I can't seem to stop it. I need help, Paul. Now, now imagine Paul is sitting here chained, and he's in prison. His, His back looks like a spider web of scars from having been beaten Five times, 40 lashes, save one. He's an old man. He's got, he, he doesn't see good. He's, but, but the Spirit of God that rests on him and the wisdom that is in him, the walk that he has and the calling that he has terrifies hell. Even the demons in the book of Acts had cried out of a demon-possessed man, Jesus I know and Paul I know. I preached one time, who in hell are you? And boy, I have some people look at me funny. (laughs) Who in hell are you? Do they even, does hell even know you? Does, Does hell know anything about you? Is hell afraid of you, afraid of your walk? When it came to Paul, the demon said, we know Jesus and we know that dude, Paul. Oh, we know him. So, Epiphras went to the one man that hell was genuinely afraid of. Now, Paul was the only man on earth intellectual enough and spiritual enough to unravel and refute the tangled web of truth and error 
It was snaring the simple souls that Epiphras was seeking to shepherd. Uh, as we saw in our study of Jude, let me talk about Gnosticism a minute, just to show you what it was. It was loony. Gnosticism was loony. Have you ever noticed, have you ever been amazed at what people will believe? Have you? I mean, this guy that just told us, what was it, May 21st was the end and everything was going to fall apart. Look at all the people that believe that. Why did they believe it? They didn't know their Bible. Now, Gnosticism was a diabolical heresy that directly attacked and undermined the work and the person of Jesus Christ. The word Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge or to know. Now, I told you in the book of Jude, you hear the word agnostic. When you put an A in front of a word, you're making the word a negative. So when you say agnostic, you're saying don't know. Don't know. If you say Gnostic, you're saying no. Stick an A in front of it, you don't know. And agnostic is saying, I just don't know about God. Don't know the truth. But Gnostic meant knowledge or to know, to have some information, some knowledge. The Gnostics claimed to have a special and superior kind of knowledge. And all cults do. Oh, we got an inside track. We've got an inside track. If you just let us teach you, we'll let you in on the secret wisdom. Anytime you hear that, you need to look for the nearest exit sign and run. Because God's made his word plain to everybody. Amen? Jesus has become for us the wisdom of God. We don't need secret wisdom. But that's what they were going around doing. And pride, of course, was involved. We got some secret. We've got an inside track to God. Gnosticism taught that salvation was achieved through knowledge, special knowledge, Gnostic knowledge, rather than Christ's death on the cross. So they began to lure people away from the cross, the blood, said, just let us teach you the special inside knowledge, and that is what will save you. Gnosticism taught that God wasn't even knowable and far too pure and perfect to have anything to do with the material universe, which was considered evil. Gnostics considered all material things to be evil, and they taught that God could not have created material things. Well, what did that do? Jesus was material. Jesus was flesh and blood. So what were they saying? God didn't come in the flesh because flesh is evil. Since, according to the Gnostics, matter is evil, deliverance from material form was attainable only through special knowledge, revealed by, of course, special, anointed, appointed Gnostic teachers. I can almost picture them luring you into a cave with incense burning and lights flashing and some candles and some of that weird music that you hear in some of these movies, you know, these chants and this kind of thing. And you know, uh, hama, 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 booty, waddy, booty, waddy. And, and here you are, and they sit you down, and they say, now let us initiate you into the special Gnostic knowledge. Ooh. Christ, according to the Gnostics, and here's where it got real serious. Christ Jesus, according to the Gnostics, was the divine redeemer who descended from the spiritual realm to reveal the knowledge necessary for this redemption. Now, notice, he didn't come and die for us on a cross. He just came to give us 
this special knowledge. So Gnosticism disconnected people from the work of the cross. And without the cross, you can't get saved. All right? Now, you've probably heard of the Gnostic Gospels because it's kind of been going around today in a new way. Just leave it to the devil to try to resurrect this stuff. But the Gnostics produced what is known as the Gnostic Gospels. They're a collection of about 52 writings based on the ancient wisdom teachings of several so-called prophets and spiritual leaders written from the 2nd to 4th century A.D. And these Gospels, when you hear the phrase or the word Gnostic Gospels, Gnostic Gospels, you need to know they are not a part of the biblical canon you're holding in your hand. The 66 books you've got that are a part of any major Christian denomination and as such, they are part of what is called the New Testament Apocrypha. What does Apocrypha mean? Writings that are not accepted as valid scripture. The Apocryphal books. Recent novels, remember this? And films like The Da Vinci Code, Dan Brown, that refer to the Gnostic Gospels have recently increased public interest. But know this, the Gnostic Gospels are not the Word of God. The Gnostics did not have the truth. They took you away from Christ, took you away from the cross, took you away from the blood, took you away from who he was. And if you embraced Gnosticism, you remained lost. The danger of Gnosticism is that it denies the incarnation of God as the Son. And that is the crux and core of the Christian faith. John 3.16 that's it. In doing this, Gnosticism denied the true efficacy of the atonement, since if Jesus is not God, he could not atone for all of mankind, and we would still be lost in our sins. And Gnosticism gained traction and lasted a couple of centuries. It took a while for the church to get rid of it. But in the meantime, the Gnostic teaching was a threatening, growing reality in the days of the apostles, and Satan was seeking to establish a Gnostic beachhead at the church in Colossae. And in it, like the devil, he picked on some small, unimpressive church, kind of out of the way, try to take it aside and pollute it and taint it and destroy it with Gnosticism and establish that beachhead by ruining the Colossian church. In response, Paul wrote his letter to the Colossians in which he utterly dismantled the Gnostic belief system. Now, I got to say, I, I wrote this gratefully. The church has been the happy recipient, we are tonight, of a spectacular kaleidoscope of brilliant truth concerning the Lord Jesus Christ and what his death, burial, and resurrection has done for the redeemed. If the Gnostics had not attacked, attacked this little church, we would not have Colossians, and I want Colossians. And what's in it? It's powerful. So let's look at it. So this time, tonight, we're going to look at Paul's passion for people, passion for prayer, and passion for principle. And we're just warming up. This is just the beginning. In the next couple of weeks, we're going to get into the meat of this, and it is so powerful. And I want to encourage you to make a, a decision. I'll be here through the end of this series because it does you no good to get the beginning and not really get into the meat of what he, he's going to go into we get the most profound Christology. What you believe about Jesus is your Christology. 
the most profound Christology, maybe in the New Testament, is in Colossians. So let's read the first verse. Are you ready? Read it out loud. Preach it to me. Let's read it now. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We're done. That's, that, that, the verse is over. But hallelujah, you're really with me. <laughs> Now I want you to notice he opens up. Now, now Paul's opening up because he knows he's going up against cultic teachers. So he's going to establish his apostolic authority. So he makes it very, very clear. Hey, I want you to understand. I was not made an apostle by democratic election. Or because of my incredible education or natural brilliant intellect. And Paul could have said that. It was by the ordination of the nail-pierced hands. He wants to know. He wants them to know. He's loading his gun. He's putting bullets in the barrel. He's saying, get this, cult teachers. You're not talking to just some guy out here who knows a little bit of the Bible. The nail-pierced hands were laid on me on the road to Damascus. I was knocked to the ground. I was blinded by a brilliant light. I heard a voice from heaven saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I was blind for three days. He told me I was called to be the apostle to the Gentiles. I, have, I am an apostle and have all the credentials of an apostle. Can I paraphrase it? He's saying, don't mess with me. That's what he's saying. I want you to understand who's writing this letter. I don't brag in my, my flesh. I don't glory in my flesh. But I will let you know who called me and what the grace is that's on me. He said, I've been ordained by the will of God. Paul was called to be an apostle of the Gentiles. The proof of his calling was in the long string of churches founded by him and his converts. All these people always going around saying, I'm an apostle, I'm apostle so-and-so, or prophet so-and-so. When somebody says to me they're an apostle, I look behind them. I want to see where the churches are. It's easy to stick a name onto your name. You ever seen these ads? Apostle, prophet, bishop, pastor, evangelist, John Doe. All these titles. When I hear apostle, I say, really? Where's the churches you planted? Well, you know, I just, uh, you know, I received a prophecy that I was an apostle. Well, I say, well, show me the fruit. Show me the fruit. You will know them by their fruits. Well, Paul said, I'm an apostle and I can show it to you. I can prove it to you. There is a long line of churches behind me that I've planted. It was important that the recipients of his letter understand that Paul was writing to them in his official capacity. Now they had better pay heed to his words. Because he could smite. Are you all with me? It's very wise to discern people according to their gifting and their calling and not after the flesh. Paul said in another place, he said, we judge no man after the flesh. We judge after the spirit. To, to misjudge Paul, remember the young man in Corinthians decided to get involved with his stepmother? 
Paul said, I don't even have to be there. I've turned him over to Satan. Woo! Ah, I turned him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. He could smite. He had authority in God. He's letting these guys know, you need to listen to me. Now, he was a major people person. Paul loved people. He longed to see them saved, labored tirelessly to promote their spiritual warfare. So in his greeting, he writes, quote, Paul and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and to the faithful brethren. Uh, he, <clears throat> you know, at the end of Colossians and a couple of his other letters, he just lists name after name after name of people that he loved, who were his friends, who were his cohorts, his fellow laborers. He was always naming them and thanking God for them and telling you something unique about them uh, because Paul was a people person. He cared about people. He loved people. The church had become his family. No doubt he'd been disowned by his own flesh and blood family because of his Christian faith. I can show you a scripture verse that will probably support that. Philippians 3.8 says, quote, For his sake, that is for Jesus' sake, I have what, everybody? Preach it to me. Lost everything. Well, that had to have included his family. I've lost everything. That doesn't leave anything. And I consider it all to be mere rubbish that I may gain Christ. He lost everything. He lost his reputation, lost his place in the Sanhedrin, lost his place among his Jewish intellectual uh, Hebrew brethren, lost everything, lost everything. He was the off-scouring of the earth, he said, in another place. But he said, no biggie. Whatever I've got to let go of to know him, to walk with him, to fellowship with him. It's rubbish. Anything that seeks to take the place of Christ in your life is rubbish. Rubbish. King James is a little stronger. Dung. Manure. But the church had pulled in the slack where he lost all these family members and friends. Now his family had become the blood-bought sons and daughters of God. Remember when Jesus said, hey, they came to Jesus and said, hey, your family's outside. He said, here's my family, those who know the will of God and do it. That's my family. Have you noticed? Can I ask you, have you noticed? Since you've gotten saved, there is a closer bond between church folk than your own flesh and blood. Have you noticed that? There is a family. This is God's family. We have been made all together a part of the mystical body of Christ. We've been baptized into the body of Christ. You're in a room with family. We're made family by the Spirit of God and by the blood of Jesus. Doesn't matter the color of skin, education level, doesn't matter. Everybody's equal at the foot of the cross. Everybody. So, amen. <clears throat> Now, Paul next makes it clear that every believer has two addresses. Do you know you have two addresses? If you get pulled over by the police, don't tell them this. <laughs> this is theological tonight. He writes, to the saints in Christ, which are at Colossae. That says you got two addresses. You're in Christ, address number one, 
Address number two in Colossae, in Fort Worth, in California, in Chicago. As God's children, we all live in two addresses at the very same time. You ever thought about that? I want you to say with me, I'm in Christ. But I'm also in Fort Worth. <laughs> According to Ephesians, God has raised us up together and made us sit together where? In heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That means theologically, positionally, you are in Christ in heaven. Experientially, you're in Fort Worth. There's two kinds of truth. Positional truth is what God has done for you. Positional truth says, I'm in Christ. It says, I'm in heavenly places. It says, I'm seated with him. It says that, that all of my sins are washed away. There is no fault in me at all, not one. Experientially, I'm in Fort Worth. I'm working out my own salvation with fear and trembling. I feel like I have fault. I know I have faults. I have flaws. But positionally, I'm already there. It's already done. Experientially, I'm still here working my way through it. So there's positional truth and there's experiential truth. I'm in Christ and I'm also in Fort Worth. <laughs> That's what I mean. If you get pulled over and he says, what's your address? Don't say in Christ. <laughs> or don't say I'm in heaven. He may take you for a little trip. Okay? But this is theological. Y'all get it? You get it. You are in Christ. That's your address. But you're also in Fort Worth. Now, living in Colossae, seated in heavenly places in Christ, two addresses at the same time. Think about that on your way home tonight. Now, next, we see Paul's passion for prayer. He says, read it with me, everybody. We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints. Now keep in mind that the same time that Paul wrote this letter, he was under house arrest in Rome and chained to a Roman soldier. Yet this did not quench his powerful spiritual life. That's why I want us to get a hold of what was in this man. Gosh. It's stunning. I'm chained. I'm in prison. Most of us are calling for our lawyer. But what is he doing? He's praying and he's writing profound books. Thinking about other people. Not focused on himself. Being locked up just gave me more time to focus on prayer. Paul's great passion for people only fueled his great passion for prayer. He had such a burden and love for people, he prayed for them all the time. No sooner did Paul think of Titus on his way to Corinth, or Phoebe on her way to Rome, carrying the book of Romans with her, or of James in Jerusalem, or of Demas, forsaking his call and backsliding into the world, that Paul prayed for them. This was Paul's way. He prayed. He breathed prayer, pray, prayed without ceasing, as surely as he told us to do. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, he said, pray without ceasing. I used to read that and say, really? How do you do that? How do you pray without ceasing? I mean, doesn't that kind of render you dysfunctional in the world if all you're ever doing is praying? I used to wonder that. Well, 
Here's what I think. Without ceasing doesn't mean that verbally or mentally we have to be speaking prayers every minute of the day. But we should pray, we should pray over and over and often. He's basically just saying, be sure that your life is a praying life. It's a praying life. You know why? Because we have a prayer answering God. Be sure your prayer life doesn't go dead. Because we've got a prayer answering God. John Piper writes, quote, Our default mental state should be, Oh, God. Well, I like that. Praying without ceasing means praying repeatedly and often. And it's not a lack of faith to pray for the same thing over and over again, years on end. And I think praying without ceasing also means that we shouldn't give up on prayer. Don't ever come to a point in your life where you cease to pray at all. Well, I've had people tell me, even recently, I don't go to church and I can't say I pray a whole lot anymore because I prayed about some things and God didn't do them. That reveals such a shallow understanding of the sovereignty, the providence, the wisdom of God in answering some prayers or not. How many of you have lived long enough to look back and say, oh, thank you, Jesus, you didn't answer that prayer? (laughs) Come on. Have you lived long enough for that? You pray, oh, let me marry them. You saw them then 15 years later? (laughs) And he's like, oh, God was wise. That's just one example. (laughs) But see, you can't just say, well, because he didn't answer that. He doesn't answer prayer. Sometimes God says no. Sometimes he says yes. Sometimes he says wait. And I believe sometimes he says, you got to be kidding. <laughs> I'm serious. I've prayed a few of those before. But no, yes, wait. But he answers every time. Don't abandon the God of hope and say there's no use praying. Go on praying. Jesus said in Luke 18, 1, it says he spoke a parable to them that men ought always to pray and not to lose heart. So don't let the devil get you to the place where you don't pray anymore. Don't let him defame God or slander God in your mind, lie to you about God, that he doesn't answer your prayers. He says, pray without ceasing. Don't give up on prayer. Paul had a great passion for people, great passion for prayer. And the last thing I want to look at quickly is Paul's passion for principle. What do I mean by that? Read it with me, verse 4. We give thanks since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. Paul's favorite trilogy of words, he repeated them over and over again, faith, hope, and love. John's favorite were love, light, and life. Paul spoke of faith voluminously and profoundly and constantly. It was his mantra, faith in Christ and him alone for salvation, not of works, lest any man should boast. Now in verse 4, Paul mentions their faith in Christ Jesus. He mentions faith and then he shows us what the faith was directed towards. Because the Gnostic cults 
were teaching false doctrine about this very thing. When it comes to faith, here's the important issue is, what is your faith in? Because I'm going to tell you, I don't care what atheists say to me. Everybody has faith in something. If you don't have faith in anything, you're not alive. Faith can be tragically misplaced. That's why Paul was harping on principle. The principle is, if you've got faith, it needs to be going to the right place. Faith in the wrong person or the wrong thing is worse than no faith at all. I don't put my faith in the government. I don't put my faith in the American dollar. I don't put my faith in any flesh and blood human being. Not, not ultimate faith. Everybody operates in faith every single day. You can put your faith in a quack doctor, some of you have. Or a dubious cure, some of you have. I've watched people die who put their faith in dubious cures. He will pay dearly for it. If you put your faith in the wrong thing, it can really cost you. We all got faith. And we exercise it every day. Watch this. We have faith in the automaker that designed our car. We have enough faith in them. We put a key in a little ignition and turn it, fully believing it's going to start, and we can't tell you how. But we have faith it's going to work. We have faith in the architect that designed our house, faith in the bank where we deposit our hard-earned pay. We have faith that when we put the money in there, we're going to get it back. Faith. But you don't know the people in there. You use faith every day. The only thing that transforms our ordinary, mundane, simple faith, everyday faith into saving faith is the object. Because God wired us to be people of faith. Simple faith becomes saving faith when it becomes faith in Christ Jesus. You take that same faith you put in the bank, when you put that money in, I'm getting that money back, maybe with a little bit of interest. That faith, you direct it up in Christ and what he did for you, and it becomes dynamic, powerful, life-changing, soul-altering, saving faith. Just like that. Well, that's a good place to end. So can we stand together? And next time, oh, don't miss next time, because we're going to look at supernatural love and sustaining hope. How many of you are glad that you put faith in the right place? Amen? How many of you ever put faith in the wrong thing? The rest of you, I want to meet you. You never put faith in the wrong thing? What'd she say? What? Oh, yeah. Well, it's easy to do, isn't it? But you will never be disappointed when your faith is directed up towards Him. Father, we thank You right now for faith in Christ. Thank You, Lord, that as we go through this book, You're going to show us how Paul dismantled these lies and upheld Jesus, and we're going to be armed to do the same thing. We thank You, Lord, for increasing our faith and our wisdom and knowledge and understanding. Jesus' name, let's worship him just for a moment before we go. Lead us, Heidi. Thank you, Lord. Sing it with us now.